Hello and welcome to New Business Paradigms. I'm Matt Renner, the Executive Director of the World Business Academy, and I'm here with Ronaldo Brutico, the Academy's President and Founder. The World Business Academy is a nonprofit business think tank and action incubator dedicated to transforming the consciousness of business leaders, business students, and the public at large in order to inspire business to take responsibility for the whole of society. Uh, we're recording this show on February 22nd, 2017, and today there is one thing we know for certain. The future is currently nearly impossible to predict. Uh, this hasn't ha always been the case, but the rapidly developing political and environmental realities have created a unique instability. This instability is both deeply concerning, choked full of risk, but it's also a unique opportunity for rapid changes to an outdated system that was stuck in a stalemate for decades. Uh, Ronaldo, you see trouble on the horizon, and your outlook has more in common with uh, Goldman Sachs than it usually does. Are you, are you uh, seeing a recession coming? Let's, let's go through your thinking on this. Well, um, the reference to Goldman Sachs is a good one because um, they, they are sophisticated economists, Goldman Sachs. And since they've been successfully, for the most part, successfully running the country for over 100 years, we've got to give them some credit. <laughs> and apparently in the Trump administration, they're going to continue to run the government. Or at least there's quite a few of them there. They've made some mistakes. They made a few. But they usually make money on top of it. Well, they make money in either direction. That's the beauty of Goldman Sachs is they, they, they make it going up, they make it coming down. Um, I think that the, um, first of all, the, the Goldman's, two things. I'm going to start with the Bank of England, then I'll segue to Goldman Sachs. So the Bank of England is run by the finest banker in the world, with the possible exception of Janet Yellen, who runs our Fed. His name is Mark Carney. He's former governor of the Bank of Canada, which is the only major industrial nation that went through the 2008 meltdown without a single major bank going broke because they had proper regulation. They brought Mark Carney, a Canadian, in to run the Bank of England a few years ago, right after the uh, recession happened, because they wanted to shore up the Bank of England so it wouldn't get cratered like it did because it really got whacked badly. Um, and, and, and we should probably touch on German and French and Italian banks again in this show. Okay. Um, but so what the Bank of England is saying, and, and, and Mark Carney was put on the spot two days ago, three days ago, that they have lost the ability to predict the future of the economy. Now, that's a pretty tall statement. I, it actually was probably never true they could precisely predict it. But they had a pretty good set of scenarios they could run. They could say, well, this is the low expectation, the medium expectation, the high expectation will be somewhere in there. What the Bank of England admitted yesterday, two days ago, was that they simply do not have the tools to evaluate what's likely to happen. In the case of England, it's partially about Brexit. But if you read the article that appeared in the Times of London about this, what they're really talking about is something much more fundamental. They're talking about the views of millennials. They're talking about... Um, the inability to predict what's going to happen with with a trade globally because of the U.S. and other reasons, their inability to predict because no one knows what Brexit will mean ultimately to the British. So, the Bank of England is saying, you know, we really are we can't even see into our crystal ball. And since as I say Mark Carney is probably the second, if number one or number two, global banker right now, Janet Yellen being I think extremely good. Um, for him to admit that and have to defend it in front of a committee of, of the House of, 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 of the, in the Parliament of London, it's amazing. It's an amazing statement, really, and not something you normally expect conservative bankers to say. Now let's segue into what about that statement that probably gave rise to some of the same thinking Goldman Sachs had. Well, Goldman Sachs was looking also primarily at, at, at global trade. And what they were saying was within a, roughly an 18-month parameter, you could see some economic growth because of fiscally stimulative policies of the Trump administration. So just to remind our listeners, we, we 
we're not going to talk a lot about the morality of the Trump politics. We're not going to talk about whether or not the country, um, his appointments just politically. But we do want to look at what implications Trump's administration has on the economy. And what Goldman observed correctly was two things that you can see now in Trump's early outing that will have a adverse effect on the global economy, and they predict it'll happen by 2018. And what they're saying is those two things that they can see clearly are any restriction on global trade, which clearly seems to be his preference, is going to have a bad effect on the global economy, including the U.S. So they're saying, you know, it might feel good initially, but it's not going to be something that that will be without adverse consequences that will be worse than the benefit gained. The second thing that they looked at was immigration, the Trump immigration policy. And they pointed out correctly in their analysis that about four-tenths of a point, or almost a half a point of GDP growth, is directly related to net new immigration. In other words, when immigrants come to the country through the normal process, and by the way, you know, most people might not know this, we currently have a very small immigration quota. We have a million people per year. Now, the Trump administration has floated. They want to cut that to 500,000. These would be legal immigrants. These are people who go through years of, you know, qualifications before they can get here. And, and what they're saying, that the Trump administration is saying, is that we're going to cut that million to 500,000, which means the growth of four-tenths of a point will grow to two-tenths of a point. So you're cutting in half the benefit of immigration to the economy. It's also going to create more pressure on labor in the economy. We'll come back to that in a moment. And it's going to create um, destabilization because part of what those changes are that they're proposing is that a spouse that gets into the country legally now won't be able to get their spouse in with them. So that could further discourage immigration even beyond the 500,000. That said, uh, Sachs, Goldman Sachs said that the, the implications of reducing immigration, which, is, which you need in an economy like America's because we are aging as a population. Um, baby boomers are the second largest now, no longer the largest, but a huge segment of the population. And um, it's not till you get down to the millennials that you get to a population base that's larger than the, than the boomers. So you got to go down to people who are in the 30s or less before you get to another chunk of people that can come along in the workforce. And there doesn't seem to be anything behind the millennials to take their place. So in an economy that is graying, and they call it the aging of America, and this has already happened in Japan, it's happened in many European economies, um, we're, we need young blood, new blood coming into the economy just for it to keep working because we, we are not creating enough of our own workers to grow the economy at the level that, well, Trump is holding out. He wants to grow it at three and a half to four and a half percent. I think most observers would be happy if you could grow it at two to two and a half percent, which is what we've historically been able to do. And I don't see either one of those happening, as you know, and we're to get to recession in a minute. So that's what Goldman Sachs was saying. Let me add to what Goldman Sachs said, what they didn't say which also further compounds the likelihood of recession. And I want to go on record when a friend of mine sent me this article to read from Sachs, Goldman Sachs. He had the footnote, he, the note, he said that, hey, Ronaldo, it sounds like Goldman Sachs is looking at it like you are, except they're seeing 2018. And my response to him was, well, Bill, the truth is, I was where they were when he first got elected. I was thinking 18 months. I now think that that's way too optimistic, that the, that the recession is going to begin way before 18 months, and certainly within 12 or less. And so... So by early next year? Oh, by, if not the end of this year. If not the end of this year. 
So um, what's happening to cause that? Well, what, what the Goldman Sachs report didn't look at was the adverse impact on retail. So all of this fall draw about white nationalism, for example, and clearly white nationalists, which is the Breitbart, so that's, that's Steve Bannon, that's, that's, that's uh, Steve Miller, that, that crowd in the White House, that, that section of the White House, that seems to have a tremendous influence still over the president um, and Kellyanne Conway, that, that group that came out of Breitbart. They you know, are proud of the fact they're white nationalists. I mean, their, their goal is to raise up the drawbridge, stop letting people send their goods here, so cut down on the imports, um, and make the country whiter and more Christian, and et cetera. And, and uh, that's what white nationalism is. Uh, and, and some people would ascribe that white nationalism is far worse than that, and they point to the rise of uh, fascist groups, Nazi groups, neo-Nazi groups, and they point to you know the nine synagogues that were threatened with bombs yesterday, and they point to the, all the Zig Heiling that went on and the Trump rallies and stuff. So, so there, there's there, there's those people who believe that. Well, when you do that, it gets people of color and minorities very very afraid. So, empowering white nationalism is bad for the economy. Very bad because <laughs> what it does is it scares people who typically spend 100 percent of their disposable income. When you are a person of color, the odds that you're spending 100% of your income is five times greater than if you are an upper-income white. Okay? So, so you, you stop spending because you're afraid. So when people go into fear and dread, which is where people are now, and it's growing. The, the fear is growing. The dread is growing. They stop spending. And it's not just the person who is fearful and dreading whatever. It's the people that that person knows. It's their relatives. It's the people in their community. Um, now, when you add to that fear and dread, what's going on in the immigration world with a dramatic increase in immigration, with, you know, widening the targets dramatically of who's going to get uh, who's going to get thrown out of the country. Uh, we haven't even hired the ten thousand new border patrol agents or five thousand new ICE, which stands for Immigration. Control? Control, I think. Customs. Immigration Customs, customs enforcement. enforcement. Immigration Customs Enforcement. Uh, there are 5,000 more of those coming. So we haven't got those people yet. And they're already doing these roundups. And they're talking about deput- forcing the deputization of local police and national guards to aid in these roundups. So we don't know how many people of the 11 million they're going to go after. But we know this. They've already had a massive impact, negative impact, because the people who are here, the 11 million that are here illegally, now are in fear that they could be deported in a moment's notice. And they have spouses and children who are legally here who are so affected. They have relatives, some of whom are here legally, some of whom aren't legally. They are affected. And all the communities within which they live are all affected, including all the tradesmen in those communities. So the immediate negative adverse economic consequence of what's happened just in the last couple of weeks from this immigration sweep, this deportation sweep, is that it's cutting back on consumer confidence and it's already cut back on retail spending. Now, we are a nation, we're a nation that survives on about 73% of our economy is based on retail spending, on consumption. Okay? And I think someone estimated, uh, one of the television pundits on uh, CNBC, as I recall, that there are roughly 35 million retail jobs. That's a lot of jobs. And the un- the unfortunate thing about that is, as soon as retail dollars drop, means spending, immediately have a cutback in retail employment. 
right away. Because stores, retail outlets, don't have to carry, because they don't have unions typically, they don't have to carry their employees for any length of time while they wait for the market to come back. They fire them and they get new ones when, when, when the market returns, which is what happened in 2008. Okay, massive layoffs, right? So immediate, and they just immediate and it took immediate. forever to come yeah. back. Yeah, and so so then you got to take okay, is so is our retail sales getting hurt by this fear and dread in the land? And the answer is yes, already so, already happening, already happening. So you're seeing that? Oh yeah. In fact, they've got a pipeline into the National Retail Association, and, and you, you, they're all very concerned about that and this import tax, which we may or may not have time to talk about. So the the, the point I'm making is when you add to Goldman Sachs's correct analysis that you're looking at a problem in 18 months. And you say, no, but the problem's not 18 months out because what he's doing with immigration sweeps is not just barring new people from coming, which is the 0.4% growth. He's terrorizing 11 million people and all the people they know. So you probably have at least 20 million plus people who now are very concerned. And when you add in the black population, you know, the only category I can find of black spending that's gone up in the last few months is the purchase of handguns, weapons. Blacks are now increasingly becoming concerned for their safety. It started with Black Lives Matter and the belief that police departments are too trigger happy and too quick to let people get away with killing black people on the streets. And that's now it's gone, it's, it's morphed past that, it's beyond Black Lives Matter with the police. They're now saying we could be the victim of white supremacy. We could, you know, we, we could be the victim of, of white nationalism. So they're buying more guns. Now, I'm really troubled by the implication that retail sales have already begun to be affected two ways. Number one, consumer confidence is dropping. We just got a survey out of Southern California that's already started dropping here. You're going to see a national drop in consumer confidence over the next 30, 60, 90 days. And I don't see that coming to an end. I don't see anything that's going to magically lift that yet. So when consumer confidence drops, the next thing that happens a month later, consumer spending drops. And the first place it drops is retail. So you're going to see people uh, spending less of their paycheck and hanging on to it because they're fearful they don't know what will happen. And if it's the, uh, you know, and there's a certain amount of that money that, say, for the immigrant community will be recycled to the legal fees, but only a small part. Most of what they're doing every day to stay alive is to feed the butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker. So when you haven't, when you stop spending as much with the butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker, collectively that reduces gross domestic product. So I'm very concerned about that, and that's where I think my my assessment is actually more negative than Goldman Sachs. Although I'm glad Goldman Sachs is looking at two aspects, which is the effect of positive immigration policies on growth of GDP, and why we want to have um, freer trade rather than you know the castle lifting the castle gate. One thing that I'm interested in, Ronaldo, is you know. We've been in a long, steady, very slow growth period uh, in terms of the U.S. for basically the entire last eight years. Uh, Not actual GDP growth the whole time, but basically very slow, steady jobs coming back after the Great Recession. What, you know, how how bad could a recession be if there aren't the right checks and and ability to address it? First of all, remember, the only reason we had a slow return to prosperity was because one political party, the Republicans, chose to try to make sure that Obama couldn't succeed. That was what McConnell said he was going to do on day one. And so they refused to let him stimulate the economy. Fiscal policy, basically. Yeah, fiscal policy. They cut him, they cut him off. So we were not able to stimulate our way out of it, which we had to do. 
I, I said a moment ago, I'd love to talk about the European banks. So what we did right in the US, which the European banks did not do as well, we actually reined in our banking industry. And as a result, they've now begun to pass stress tests. Well, the bank stocks have gone up astronomically. I mean, like 47% since Trump was elected because people, shareholders, believe that now that Trump is in, the banks are not going to be regulated anymore. So it's going to be happy times are here again, you know, and they're going to, and they're going to engage in additional risky behavior, which was greed motivated in the first place. So greed has not gone away. No one's turned into saints. And you, we're now taking the restraints off. And you and I were having a good conversation before we went on air about the purpose of regulation in a capital markets economy and, and how you can't successfully have a capital markets economy if you don't have good regulation. So the Volcker Rule, Dodd-Frank, were minimal but absolutely minimal standards, which helped us improve the banking condition in America. They didn't put one of those in. In France, three of the five largest banks in France are in deep, probably underwater if you really, really pushed them. Clearly, you've got serious problems in German banks now as well. Huge problems. I mean, uh, people are saying that, 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 that you could, but for the fact that the German government won't let it happen, you've got serious, serious Commerce Bank has got a lot of problems. Deutsche Bank has got huge problems. Huge. And um, It's funny you use the word huge or huge in regards to Deutsche Bank because they're one of Trump's biggest lenders. Yeah, they are. And, 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 and that's a whole other issue. <laughs> they and the Russians. But anyway, the, the, the point of, of that comment was what we need to focus on is the fact that the European economies... France, Italy, Spain's getting a little better, but Spain, Greece is a basket case, and clearly a basket case because they refused to stimulate it. Um, and now people are starting to figure out that's what they did wrong. The but, Europeans kept them from stimulating. Yeah, yeah, the Europeans basically choked them to death. Mm-hmm. They were down and they choked them more. And, and as a result, you're dealing with a country with 24% continuing unemployment, you know, 50% of taxes can't be collected. I mean, you got a massive basket case. And they have to keep borrowing more money to borrow more money. It's they're it's it's they're now up to 185 percent of GDP is their debt. That's crazy. The only country that's higher than that's probably Japan. And at least in Japan, you, there's society so stable. There's an argument you could make that the Japanese can withstand that kind of debt load. Of course, it's way above everything in America. Now, the the, the point though of this comment is, with this going on, with this this weakness in Europe, a major trading partner. This is the worst time in the world to reduce global trade. It's the worst time in the world to reduce U.S. consumption because it will feed on itself. And when you've already got weaknesses overseas, particularly in the banks, you're looking at a possibility where a recession could easily get out of control and it could start in three to six months. And when you ask how bad could that recession get, no one knows. But we know this. When Obama came into office, um, for the first two months he was in, we weren't even sure if we could get out of the Great Recession, which was the biggest recession since the Great Depression. And we came within a hair of getting into a depression. Now, it took a tremendous amount of discipline, and the country pulled together, both Republicans and Democrats. And that's how we came out one month at a time, even though Obama was stopped from ever re-stimulating the economy, which would have been far superior. And, you know, I wrote about that a lot, talked about it. Paul Krugman did. Uh, other people who you know, were not the only two that did. There were many people, thoughtful people, who realized that the economics were screwed up. 
and could easily be fixed, but they weren't being permitted to be fixed. So where I, where I come out on all this is there's going to be a recession unless something fundamentally changes in the way the Trump administration looks at the world. And I recognize that saying the Trump administration is not identifying something specific because there are people, as recently as today's New York Times, uh, Thomas Friedman wrote a great article, an editorial on the fact that there are multiple Trump administrations. There's the, there's the, the Bannon wing, if you will, uh, which is kind of crazy Trump. Then there's the Republican Trump wing, which is the, the Reince Priebus. Then there's the apologetic Trump administration, which is the guys that they have to send off like Pence and uh, Mathis <laughs> to tell people, no, we're not going to steal your oil in Iraq, and you know, we really aren't going to abandon NATO. And then there's Trump himself. I mean, there's these multiple administrations. So I don't know anybody knows, and I don't think Trump knows where he's going to come out on all this. But what I can tell you is what he's doing today, if it doesn't stop real soon, is going to do so much damage. It already has begun to do damage that he won't be able to stop the damage he's doing. And the tragedy is, you know, I, I, I really don't think he understands that. I, I don't think the people around him understand that. And so my goal is to tell people, okay, folks, fasten your seatbelts. We're in for a ride here. And this is a time to think very defensively with whatever your financial position is. So do you want to go into that a little bit? So in terms of both inflation and the various ways to hedge against risk and, and, and recession? Yeah, well, I, I want to touch on gold first, if I can, okay? Because we gave a prediction in, in, in December. We had advisory. We said, look, I'm going to put 10% of my money into gold. In January, I bumped it to 15%. Uh, a friend sent me an article saying, gee, um, both Polson, the famous uh, hedge fund guy, John Polson, and Soros are not buying gold as of December. They stopped buying gold. And the article, which remarkably was printed... By CNBC was published uh, on um, the yeah, two days ago, no, fifteenth of February. Excuse me, fifteenth of February. So recently, right, like a week ago. And when the guy wrote the article, whoever wrote it, didn't notice the fact that they were talking about where the price of gold was in December, which was hit hit a low of eleven hundred and change, and didn't bother to notice that gold's already bounced since we said that in December. So I told people in December, gold's only going to go up; it's not going to go down. That was a quote I gave. And what has happened is it's gone up 10% since December. That's a lot in three months. That's a whole lot. Now, is it going to keep up at that pace? I'm afraid so, because two things are happening that people need to realize. One is inflation's real. Just today, the chairman of the Fed, Yellen, said it's clear to her that the signs of inflation are picking up and that we should expect more increases in the Fed funds rate in the near future. Clearly, that was coming, she said. So that's important because that means inflation, and gold is a hedge against inflation, as I said earlier. But the other thing that gold is a, is a hedge against is against fear. So when you're scared and you don't know where things are going to go and you know what's going to happen to you, you go into gold. And you're going to see that not just in the U.S. You're going to see that in China. You're going to see that in Southeast Asia. You're going to see it in Europe to a certain extent. And you know, if, if Marie Le Pen gets elected the Prime Minister, uh, Premier, Premier of France, you're going to see it. If that guy Wilders ends up with the most powerful block in Holland, you're going to see it. Um, if this craziness with immigration and deportation with Trump continues, you're going to see it. If uh, people continue to believe that corporate greed is getting out of control and that what Trump is doing is basically feeding corporate greed, which I think there's a lot to be said that that's what he's doing, then, then you're going to have inflation. And that means 
we have to start thinking about gold as an inflation hedge, and we got to think about it as a worry hedge. Now, there's another thing you can do. And that's, there's a thing called, and I've mentioned it on this show in the past, it's called the VIX, which is the worry index. People could literally buy the VIX. And, and what the VIX is, is if you think things are going to get worse and worse, you, get a, you, get the, you buy the VIX index, which is a theoretically uh, a hedge against bad times. It's a it's a vol it's based on volatility in the yeah in the S and P five hundred yeah and it's not a one to one correlation so I don't recommend people run out and buy it tomorrow morning for a couple of reasons including which the composition of the VIX I think should be changed I think it's got the wrong makeup right now but it's it's it, it's that you there are ways to 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 bet so to speak against the coming doom so I'll give you an example the stock market is at an absolute ridiculous high price earnings ratio completely unjust so let's talk about that. What, what, what does that mean? What it means is if you look at the historical ratio, price of a stock to the earnings of a stock, we're right now and have been for quite some time at the highest range it's, it's been in my memory. Okay. And that ratio is supposed to essentially define the, the, the value of the stock, right? I mean, yeah. In other words, the price you pay is a multiple of the earnings you expect. And typically, price earnings multiples get higher if you think the economy is going to get better. Because then you're going to pay more today for a stock who's going to have more earnings tomorrow. So then you got to look at the earnings releases. Say, well, what's going on in the earnings releases? So right now, stocks are essentially overvalued compared overvalued. to what the company yeah. they're earning. Yeah, and I, by the way, I, I'm, I'm not the only one saying that. I mean, that, that's a quite commonly held view by many people in the investment community. Right, so why is that happening, though? Be, well, first of all, that's a very good question. First of all, people believe that some of Trump's policies are going to create a, a, a real boomlet. Let me give you an example. Um, there's a trillion dollars, which we've talked about, sitting offshore in untaxed money that American companies have been racking up, holding it offshore because they didn't want to pay tax on it. Well, that trillion dollars, if he says, okay, tax holiday, uh, pay a 5% tax and you can bring it all home, that a huge chunk of that money's coming home. So that's going to bring a tremendous amount of money into the economy. Now, where will that money go, you might ask? Well, the last time we did a tax holiday on overseas money, it went to shareholders. It didn't, go to, it didn't go to economic activity. It didn't go to buying more goods and services, hiring more employees. It went to shareholders, okay. either in the form of a dividend or a share repurchase. So that has a temporary stimulative effect for those people who can own shares, which by definition is less than 50% of the public. And the people who own a lot of shares, by definition, less than 2% of the public. So will that boomlet cause more money to be able to be spent at Tiffany's? Yeah. Will there be more jets and yachts purchased? Yeah, but not enough to keep the economy going up when you compare it to the other 95% of the public, which will get no benefit at all or very little. So that's, that's, that, that boomlet is one reason. And the, and, the, and the shorter version of that is giving rich people more money doesn't do much for economic activity. No, no I mean, and we, that's, we've known that since the Reagan years. I mean, that was the, the, the completely, uh, uh, the whole trickle-down theory was, as correctly described by Herbert Walker Bush, voodoo economics. And, 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 you know, we've seen the Laffler curve get laughed out of every classroom. And, I mean, it's, it's, it's insanely stupid, and everybody knows it. And they're bringing back the Laffler curve, which the Laffler curve says lower taxes so much that it stimulates economic activity, except it never worked and doesn't work. And everybody knows that. So what are they really doing? Well, they're creating, they're creating a, a payday for the people who put them in office, basically. But there's one other thing that's happening. It's a huge boomlet that the market's betting on. They're betting on dramatically lower tax rates. Why is that important? Now we go back to price earnings. Because if the effective tax rate of a U.S. corporation drops from about 37%, which is where it's at today. No one pays it, but that's what it's supposed to be. No, no. I mean, no one, no large companies pay it. There's a whole industries. that Bunches of large it. companies do. Many, many companies do not. 
GE, for example. Bank of America. Bank of America. Others. Right. But many companies, I'm proud to say I'm, I serve on the board of a company for 29 years that pays at 37%, the Taylor Brands. And I think that people should go find the companies that are doing the things that they approve of and spend their money there rather than spending their money with a company that basically is taking advantage of the public. But that's a whole other issue. Yeah, so the market's pricing in a... They're pricing in an earnings boost. A not, not A windfall. Not because the company's going to earn more money, but because the earnings that they, they'll see will be higher because the net effective tax rate dropped. So let's say for a heck of it, you had a dollar's worth of earnings and you have a 37% tax rate. So that means you got 63 cents left. Now, if you have that same dollar, you didn't improve anything. And instead of having... Uh, 37% tax rate, you've got a 20% tax rate. Some people say he's going to lower it to 15, but take 20%. So that means you have 80 cents left over. So 80 cents instead of 67, multiply it by 15 or 17 PE, and all of a sudden the value of the stock goes way up. Okay. So what they're banking on is there'll be an artificial temporary increase in corporate profitability as a result of the reduction of the tax burden. Why doesn't that make sense? Because even if that were to happen, since it's not going to raise consumption, what it's going to do is you're going to be getting higher corporate profits even as the market's turning down in recession. And when that starts to happen, they won't be able to hide their lack of profitability behind a tax deduction. They'll be, they'll be going, oh my God, we didn't make the dollar anymore. Now we only made 50 cents because the customer's not spending. And we're already beginning to see that in retail. The customer has slowed down his spending already, and that's going to continue to slow down. So I said on this show in January, I said the unemployment rate at 4.7% is the lowest you will see it in the entire Trump administration, no matter how long he's in office. We now know that's true because this month it hit 4.8%. And there's nothing that's going to push it down below 4.7%. And it's going to go up from here. And so as the unemployment rate starts to go up, which it will, and as the economic activity starts to slow because of lack of consumption, which it will, that will lead to more and more fear and to what ultimately will become the recession. Once the recession starts, this goes to your question, where does it end? And the answer is, it only ends if somebody knows what they're doing and has the discipline to do it. And I don't see anyone on scene right now that has that ability. And unlike the last recession, just to tie it to 2008, the Fed had some power in 2008 because they could lower interest rates to zero. Right. Can't do it anymore. They're basically at zero still. They're close to zero now. You think we're going to see a Fed increase, a uh, rate increase? Oh, yeah. In the short term? Oh, yeah. Yeah, within the next quarter. So let me make an analogy, and you tell me if this makes some sense. The fear and dread that we're talking about that's being stoked is going to hit consumer confidence and lead to a reduction in spending in, in, the, at the, in the retail sector and, and in general. Would you say that that's also analogous to the potential and the and the fear mong or fear mongering the, the potential threats to the kind of global trade order uh the threats imposed uh, by the suggestion of tariffs potential trade wars these kinds of things is there also fear being stoked in the in the broader economy in the global economy based on that kind of rhetoric and would oh, that yeah. have a similar effect well no i think yeah and that's what what goldman sachs is saying is that they see any attempt to reduce global trade will be likely to cause a downturn in, in, in global GDP, which it will. Um, and I think that there's a tremendous amount of nervousness about that over everywhere. In fact, um, you know, if we have time in this show, I want to talk about 
one thing that I'd like to get to at some point, which is this um, this fear that we need to have more manufacturing jobs and, and what's driving that and why that's so crazy. But before I do, I want to just take one more th thing about the stock market. When you, and I mentioned a minute ago, bank stocks are up like 47%. Uh, and because they think, okay, the, the teachers out of the classroom, spitfall, spitball fight can resume, and they can overcharge the classmates for water and for spit and paper. You know, I mean, it's like it's going to get really ugly because greed does that. Greed drives this. But the the there will be selective winners in the market that are real. For example, um, for private colleges that that diploma mills that, that charge their students a lot of money. Um, for uh, getting a degree, and then they get out and they can't get a job. And under the last two years of the Obama administration, there was a crackdown, appropriately so, for the Department of Energy, Education that said, look, if you can't show us that your graduates are getting jobs with these degrees, we're going to stop lending the money to the, those students that go to your school. Because what happens is the student borrows the money from the federal government, pays it to the private college. The private college keeps it and gives it as dividends if you're University of Phoenix. And then when the student can't find a job and they, and they can't pay the debt back, the, the government gets stuck with the bill, but you know, Phoenix already got the money. You follow me? The student and the government get stuck yeah. with it. Yeah. So the, today, in today's New York Times, there was an article which correctly points out that with DeVos as the new Secretary of Education, who's already said she has no intention of, quote, being the executioner, close quote, on private colleges, and that she sees nothing wrong with them, and in fact has financial investments in private colleges, um, that's all going to turn around now. And so it's going to be open season again on students gullible enough to borrow money to go to a school where they'll get a degree, theoretically, which has no economic value. And, and then they'll be stuck with the debt, but they won't have the, they won't have the earning capacity. And that's going to that's gonna re-up. Well, that will cause those stocks to go up. And their earnings will go up because the government's going to subsidize them again. And their earnings were getting flattened by the fact that they had to have students and they couldn't get students without government loans. So some selective industries, I've talked about banking, I've now talked about private college, there are other selective industries that will do well. There are other macro effects, however, that can't save any industry. So for example, try though they will, all the king's horses and all the king's men cannot put the oil industry back together again. Or the coal industry, yeah. Or the coal industry, okay? So, you know, here we are, it's now February 23rd today, is it 22nd, and, and um, oil, is still hovering at $50 a barrel because as fast as OPEC can try and reduce consumption uh, production, America continues to frack more and more. And what's interesting is we're now fracking at a level that I think we were at like a year and a half ago, and about a third of the rigs haven't been put back in service, meaning there's way more excess capacity because we're so much more efficient at fracking. Now, I don't like fracking. I'm against fracking. I think it's crazy. I think it's... It's destructive of our water system. I think it's destructive of the of the environment. But clearly, fracking under this administration is going to accelerate, and as it does, it will continue to put downward pressure on the price of oil. When you add to that non-oil industry-related activities in the macro sense, so wind, solar, cars that are more fuel efficient, electric cars, hydrogen fuel cars, um, total demand will slow down now as the economy of the world starts to slow down, which is what's coming in the recession. And that will put further downward pressure on oil. So I would say if you want to bet, if you want to short sell oil stocks, meaning you want to sell a stock at today's price and cover yourself with a purchase of that stock a year from today, I think it's now safe to short stocks in oil if you, if you have a one-year short. Uh, I don't recommend that to people because it takes a lot of sophistication to do shorts. 
but you asked how could people make money out of this i said the worry index i've talked about some other things now i'm adding shorts in there vix and short selling oil so you know the 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 outlook is is pretty dark um I would say that, you know, I think I, what our listeners are interested in besides protecting themselves is essentially, uh, well, from, from what, I, what I understand is it, it, deeply understanding the forces at play here. And, you know, we talked about corporate greed a little bit. And before the show, we were talking about the fact that you have some real companies that you want to highlight in general, just on an ongoing basis on your Twitter and elsewhere, companies that are doing uh, business correctly. Yeah, I'll tell you what, every time somebody sends me an email or calls up the office and requests it, I'll issue the name of another company that's doing the right thing by people. Okay. So it's up to you folks. If you want to know who the good guys are, call us and write, and we'll we'll start releasing them one at a time. Because there's lots of them out there. Are they a majority? No. No, they're not. Greed runs most companies. That's true. But not all companies. And if you put your money, if you start spending your money with the companies that are trying to do right by you and society... You'll be doing the right thing. You'll be happier, and society will benefit. Do you have a teaser of a company you want to highlight? No, I want people to respond. Because right. I want to see who's listening and if they care enough. You know what? If people don't care enough to ask, I don't like to talk to hear myself talk. I'd like to hear people ask, and I'll be glad to share. share. So the best place to write to you would be info at worldbusiness.org? Yep. And alternatively, they can see your Twitter, and your handle is Ronaldo Brutico, at Ronaldo Brutico on Twitter. Yeah, and that's really important because things are happening so fast now. You can't, I mean, nothing's standing still for a month. You know, things are changing. And, and if, if it turns out something I've said on this show needs to be updated, changed, reversed, augmented, it'll show up on my Twitter feed. And then we'll go from there. And if those of you did follow the Twitter feed, you saw a bunch of the ones I, I put out in the last couple of weeks. Um, but before we go past this, Ed, I want to go into the back of this manufacturing thing. Because people have this nostalgia for the past that's really misplaced. Yeah, I think that that was one of the baseline kind of arguments of the of the Trump campaign, too, was a nostalgia for kind of a, a imagined 1950s United States. But one of the key pieces was these blue-collar jobs that really did used to exist um, where people could make a living with one person working. Yeah, and so... What every major industrial nation has done, and that includes China, is they, and these, this is a term I like to use, I call it, they've globalized their supply chain. What do I mean by the word globalized? Meaning, you, the best way to produce goods and services, particularly goods, is to have each component made in the place which is optimized for the economic creation of that component. So... Nobody in their right mind would say, let's build ships in America, because you can't build them here for three to five times what it would cost to build them in other parts of the world. So our ship companies, or in this case companies that ship goods, are better off ordering ships from other countries. Now, it turns out we don't have a merchant marine like we used to, so it's other people that are buying the ships. But the point is, no one's going to come to America to buy ships. Okay? And they shouldn't. They're not going to go to Japan, which is where they used to go in, in 1950 was to buy them in Japan. They're not going to go to Poland, which is where they used to buy them in 1960. And they're not going to go to Korea much more. So they're going to go to those countries which have the correct labor structure to be able to economically afford to build ships. Then you can afford to get a ship that can transfer goods between countries so that one country is exporting, the other country is importing, and vice versa. Those ships can stay full in two directions. And when that happens, global trade occurs, and global trade lifts both countries up. Okay? Now, the idea 
that manufacturing is somehow the only way to get good jobs is just crazy. It, it, it's so reminiscent of what the Luddites were complaining about back in the turn of the century, last century with the Industrial Revolution. The theory behind the people who were against the Industrial Revolution is they said, you know, <clears throat> we've got these <clears throat> people who used to card wolf, which, uh, wool, which is they pull it, right? And the machines took their jobs. So all the carters and the wharfers, the people who were running them up and down for, for weaving, they're all going to be out of work. This is terrible. We should break these machines. And they went around, these group of people called the Luddites, and they went around breaking machines at the Industrial Revolution because they said, these machines are replacing people's jobs. And so what happened? As we know, the Industrial Revolution gave rise to the extraordinary economic boom that we've been living off of since 1900. And in the process, because the British copied the U.S. example, which was education, free education, they copied our example. They re-educated all the workers and the, and, and the people who were doing the, the carding of the wool. And those people ended up tradesmen and journeymen and developed all of their occupations, which paid them a lot more than trying to pull wool apart. Okay. Now, um, we had a very similar thing happen in America, which I want to show people that, I mean, apart from the Industrial Revolution, we had this massive migration in the late 40s where farming economy mechanized. And so instead of people, you know, breaking tractors, what they did is they left rural America in droves and went to the cities. What did we do? We educated them in high schools for free. And we turned them into consumers in urban areas. So we've already had a massive migration of people from the country to the city, and it happened in the 50s. It happened again. Actually, it was that, was, that first one was in the 30s. It happened again in the 50s after World War II. So what happened? All these GIs came back from the war with nothing to do. What did we do? We sent them to college for free. They come out of college for free, and they became the bedrock of the economic explosion, which occurred positively from 1955, 1952, really, to the present day, 1950, really, to the present day. So we know that if you educate your workers, when they are displaced by technology, which they hopefully will be, because technology is always going to work better than people, as it's to, then you up-level them to the next level of economic activity and they become the, the doctors, the lawyers, and the engineers. So as you know, I strongly believe, whereas we pioneered universal education in the United States for high school, I think it's way past time we pioneer universal education for free at college level. And we have great, great community colleges. We're here in Santa Barbara where we do this show and probably one of the best community colleges in the country is Santa Barbara City College. I mean, it's fabulous what you, the education you get there. And after two years there, if you want to go on, you can migrate to a state university. Now, it's so expensive, people are not doing it enough now. What we need to do as a society is say we need to put the money we're making from increasing our productivity through the use of machines, through the use of the import-export market. We need to put that money into the pockets of people through education and other useful political Outlets. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, that's the thing that broke down in the 70s and 60s is that relationship between productivity and wages. There used to be a really tight relationship as from the beginning of the United States till uh, about the 70s between as productivity rose, wages rose. And that wasn't just a sweet, nice agreement of, you know, the capitalists wanting to do the right thing. It was because of organized labor and a labor shortage in the United States that really started to fall apart in the 70s. You know, the or the assault on organized labor in the 80s really cut back their power. 
and the entrance, first of all, computers and the entrance of women into the workforce did actually have an effect on the labor market of having a lot more people for the same number of jobs. So I think that there, there's, you know, the, the break there has created this gap, you know, it's called the wage uh, pr productivity gap. And, and I think that that's also a big reason we're seeing a demand problem, right, is because yeah. to fill that gap, people went into debt. And there's a ton of productivity, and people made debt easier, so well, they, no, they were able to buy. No, it's also because the money got raked off. I mean, I mean, you have more disequilibrium in the distribution of wealth in this country than has ever existed since probably the colonial times. Right. And so they, we they hoard, worked they all those years. Yeah, yeah, we worked since since 1700. We've worked to get a broader middle class. And there's nobody that's a student of any form of political system that doesn't recognize that a large and growing middle class stabilizes a, a democracy. So we correctly did all the right things for a very, very long time. You know, and at this point, are we at a point in time where because of greed, because of the fact that business isn't playing the role it should, and then I want to appeal right now to people in business, if you're listening, you know, Business has got to take some leadership now. Smart business people know that business doesn't prosper if the society is in turmoil. Business doesn't. You can't do good business in Syria or Iraq or Afghanistan. Why? Because when, when a country's in turmoil, and of course that's the most violent example, but I, I would say the turmoil that we're facing in America right now, which is going to lead to this next recession, which is, you can bank on it, there's a recession coming, probably before the end of 2017, certainly within 12 months. And, and it could be a lot sooner because people aren't going to like it when the unemployment rate goes up. And they're not going to like it when the earnings go down from corporation. And so if there is an artificial bubble or two that comes through, like repatriation of foreign cash or dramatic reduction in corporate tax rates, that's a, that'll be a blip on the radar. The downward trend is inevitable, and that will only make it worse, actually. And, and, and as you said to me offline, off camera, sort of like you said, yeah, what a moral hazard. You know, tell people the trillion dollars that if they hide it, we'll let them bring it back. If they for, hide it for long enough. Hide it long enough, we'll let you bring it back for 5%. Now, that's crazy. I mean, that's just, that's greed. Unrestrained greed always will destroy a society. I, um, I think uh, someone once said that what, what, what the Romans realized if they wanted to keep the population under control was to give them bread and circuses. And so far, all we're getting is circus, no bread. <laughs> and I don't see bread coming. I, 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 I don't see anything that they're doing that actually fundamentally will increase either production or consumption. And I see a lot of things that are going to decrease both consumption and production. So I guess the, the, the comment about mechanization and robots is, and the thesis is, it doesn't have to be this way, right? It doesn't have to be that robots no. are going to displace workers and or they may displace them, but we, we could make use of the, they should. that labor force and turn it into something productive. But... I Industrial machinery always replaces workers, and it's a right. good thing because then the machine does the most, least valuable work the mechanized routine work, and the humans do the thinking part. We didn't have as many PhDs when we had the, in 1900. You know, 90% of the scientists that have ever lived are alive today. That's right, because the machines did the work that freed us up to create the wealth to create the scientists. And we, we forgot that, and now we make it so expensive to go to, I mean, the U.S. education system is appalling. So I guess my point is that you're saying that there is a, an alternative to that kind of future of jobless. Always. Yeah. 
It's always. The, the, I mean, I think that there's a prem, there's a there's a question coming too, which is, does it make sense to have to work to to live, yeah. right? And and that's that's a deeper question that's involved well, in actually, that conversation. You know, because I'm Italian, I love this question because what they say, and I'll give you the English version is, you Americans, you live to work, you love to work, you live to work. We Italians, eh, we work to live. We do what we have to do to make it. I'll give you one for an openers. A couple of really smart countries in Europe are starting to ask a fundamental question. What is sacrosanct about the 40-hour work week? You remember, 100 years ago, that was considered racketical to only work 40 hours. Everybody worked six days a week, 12 hours a day. Certainly 10 hours a day. The working class did. The working class, Mm -hmm. right? And when people said 40, how can we run a country on a 40-hour work week? I don't think a 40-hour work week makes sense. And you know what? If we bring enough robots into the deal, we don't have to work 40 hours. And what would we do with the extra time? Well, some of us would study more. Some of us would read more. Some of us would, would become involved in the arts. Some of us would make more money. Or just spend more time with their family. Or just spend more time with their family. There's nothing inherently sacred about a 40-hour work week. In fact, I would say there's something fundamentally wrong with it. And I would love to see the United States use the increase which they would get from proper economic policies, which I do not see on the horizon, use it to get free education through college and reduce the work week to 35 hours. At that point, who doesn't like robots? If robots gave you that, how many people listening to this broadcast would be afraid of robots if that's what the payoff was? Well, and if you want to make the economic argument, that's five extra hours a week for shopping. That's right, <laughs> which will happen to Americans because they love to consume. But, you know, that, that's a really important point. And, and you know, I, I think that a whole rethink of how that economy works could be the outcome of what could be a dark and stormy recession. Uh, we'll see if we get there. Well, what's going to happen, you can count on this, is it's going to slide towards recession. Then the question is, will, in this case, the Republicans, because they're in control of all three branches of government, basically, will the Republicans be smart enough for their long-term future to go, oops, we, we, we went too far here? And will they be willing to... rearrange their thinking on how to run the economy for the majority of people. And the reason why that probably won't happen is because the Republican Party historically has been the refuge of the wealthy and the the privileged. And there's no reason why that has to be the case, but that's the case today. I'll give you an example. There's certain things that that are conservative that I agree with. And I'm happy to talk about it. So, so the label conservative and liberal to me has always been crazy. It doesn't make any sense at all. If you look at whether or not people have regressive values or progressive values, that makes more sense. What's a regressive value? Turn back the clock. Let's make it like the 50s again. Put women back in the kitchen, make them pregnant barefoot. Or like the 1550s, yeah. Well, <laughs> I was just going to, I was going to Ozzie and Harriet. You went all the way back to Henry VIII. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 a progressive value is, hey, we're rich enough in the top 2%. Why don't we see if we can't make the top 2% the top 20%? And why don't we bring the middle class along with us? Okay, How much is enough? When is enough enough? And, and if you've already got all this money coming in, why is it you're worried about paying a little tax or reinvesting your money in the country that's creating that wealth in the first place? Well, and you see it as in your best interest to make sure everyone has a decent life. That's right. And, and you will actually do better as a result. And it'll be safer. And your kids will have a future. Now, we didn't talk about climate change on this show. And we probably don't have time today. But, you know. Actually, if, that was next on my agenda. We have a couple minutes. Do we? Well, you know, I mean, 
we we should be instead of talking about how are we going to keep the economy from sliding into recession, which it's going to do, folks, unfortunately. And I don't see anything on the horizon to change that. I wish it did. Well, let me before we pivot. Let me just say one thing on that because there are the there is this thing called democracy that we have some semblance of left in our gerrymandered and you know representative democracy system that has is uh, is kind of creaking and being held together with tape and bubble gum and sticks, but the the outlet for this kind of problem is elections right i mean that's how people are supposed to be heard and change the course of the country and we just had one and that's where where we are we now have two more years until there's another national big national election uh that's the question right is is there the 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 american response instead of social breakdown is there a democratic response coming and i think that there is potentially uh, I'm not counting it out. So we may have, no. especially with a real recession coming on quickly, you could see a backlash that would be contained within the normal structures of our institutions. Well, what I'm saying is, so, but see, people, when the recession, as it comes on, it becomes more obvious. 4.8 becomes 4.95, 5, 5.1, 5.2, 5.3, 5.5, 5.7, 5.8, 6%. When that starts happening and you see uh, consumption dropping and you see retail sales dropping and you see profits of retail companies dropping... When that as that's happening, how are people going to react? See, I, unfortunately, we could get into a tailspin that's so tight. It's in, in the world of aviation, it's called a dead man spiral. When you when you make the mistake, if you start to pancake and spiral down, if you make the mistake of putting power on and trying to counteract the spiral, you will actually increase the spiral to the point where you're spinning and diving at the ground. It's called a dead man spiral. So. We have, if we have enough time to have another election, we could do it. But remember, the majority of people didn't get what they wanted in the last election. We still have the Electoral College. And even if you could hold an election today, which you can't, you can't do anything for 18 months, what's the most you could achieve? Well, in, eight, in, in, in 18 months, you could reduce the Republican control of Congress, but not eliminate it, most likely. Okay, You are not going to you may be able to get the Senate to be 50-50 or less. I don't know. You certainly are not going to change the White House. So to me, the, the, the better likelihood is that mature adults will come to see whether it's because they use the 25th Amendment or whether because there's an impeachment. Those are the only two ways you're going to get a change in the, in, in the White House. Yeah. So yeah. I, I just think I just think that we're in a situation where we don't have the time. We're not going to have the time because the people who are capable of understanding this has have absolutely no power now, or virtually none. Yeah. Anyway, let, let's talk. And about the fans out of bullets. You know, it, it's all speculation in terms of past the next year. I think, but let, let, let's let's move on to climate change just because I think it's really important and we haven't touched on it in a little while. Do you, you know we've been seeing some epic storms here in California. Uh, just got us out of the the drought that we were in that people thought was were going to take years to dig out of in a few months. Yeah, I heard that uh, San Francisco this month has had more rain, twenty four inches, than all of last year combined. Yeah, it's been crazy up there. And and so my my um and I understand San Jose is underwater today. There's it's flooding. Yeah. People are floating all over the place in San Jose. Uh, and we've had you know the, the Oroville Dam crisis. We've had uh, one hundred one here in Southern California was been washed out in two locations. It's still washed out up north up and by Carmel. Monterey Peninsula. So, I, you know, look, I, I gave this, I reported this about a year ago. The last time I saw the number, our, the density of water, moisture in the air, was up 7% over 10 years ago. My guess is if you did that same test today, it's probably up 8 or 9%. It's only 8%. It's 
It's growing fast. There's just more water in the atmosphere. There's more water because when it gets hotter, as we've had hotter and hotter years, you get more water in the atmosphere. Evaporation occurs from the oceans and elsewhere. And so it goes up in the air. So when you have a storm, it's got to come down with tremendous amount of water lets go in a very short period of time. And then it doesn't rain because it's hotter. So you're going to have in California, in many other parts of the world, you'll have droughts punctuated by deluge. And we, we, we've been predicting that for years here about the climate change. So the, what people need to understand about climate change is we're on the hockey stick now. The speed of climate change is happening so fast, no one's going to have a chance to get used to it. There is no new normal. The new normal is abnormal. And as a result, what you're going to see is continuing demands on human civilization to adapt to an environment which is increasingly less friendly to the industrialized nations of the world. Um, well, even worse to the non-industrialized nations. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm only talking because we were talking about the economy here. Yeah. The non-industrial, look, Pope Francis said it best, uh, that the effects, the adverse effects of climate change are worst on the people of, who can least afford it. The poorest of the poor pay first. Uh, it's a statistic I think I've used before, but uh, of the 4 million people who fled to try to get to Europe last year, 3 million came from Africa, 1 million came from the Middle East. And that's a function of climate change as much as anything else. The, the destabilization that occurs in countries because of climate change is enormous. I mean, people forget the Syrian war began because of climate change. So, um, you know, I just think that um, we are going so fast towards a non-sustainable future, but we are also way past the point of no return. We're past the tipping point. So if we want to, if we want Western civilization as we know it to survive, or human civilization as we know it to survive, because I'm including China now, um, we should be working full tilt boogie on remediating climate change instead of trying to figure out how we can greedily extract another few bucks by a favorable piece of legislation for my industry or my company. I, I, I just, you know, we didn't talk about it today and hopefully we won't have to, but the fight going on between the people who want to import tax and the people who don't. You know, I, I think I told you that the, the, the companies that want an import tax, um, General Electric, Boeing, Caterpillar, Pfizer, because um, they they want to export more and they want to tax imports and use the tax to pay them to export. And then on the other side of that battle, you got people like you know Walmart, Home Depot, Target, Lowe's, Dole Foods, Samsung America, Family Dollar, LG Group, Chiquita Brands, Ikea, Phillips Electronics, Nike, Costco, Sears, J.C. Penney, General, all these different companies that are that, that import so much that they don't want to see an import tax as it collapse them. And I'm very much against an import tax. Well, the, you, you, that's not where we should be thinking. We shouldn't be fighting about who's going to be the victor and who's going to be the loser. Where's the you know the spoils going to go? We should be talking about the fact we all got to pull together because our collective nest is being destroyed. And if we don't get about reversing that damage, not just stopping it, but reversing it, um, we won't be around here in 50 years talking about what went wrong because we won't be here in 50 years, most of us. Well, on that bright note... Uh, <laughs> Sorry know, about that. No, okay. you, did, you brought up climate change. <laughs> I, and, and, and for the record, <laughs> I'm impressed with human ingenuity to this point. I know that forces are challenging and there's a lot of huge hurdles to get over, but... It's not over till it's over, and that's how I feel about the 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 outlook for the you know three to four year period. I think that 
this could be the, the, the catalyst that we've been waiting for to actually get people engaged. And you're seeing a lot more civic participation in general. Uh, and the global piece is, is very risky and, and full of potential pitfalls. But I'm not, I'm not out of hope yet. No, 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 let, no I'm not out of hope either. Let me just tell you, I, one of the things I'm encouraged by is the reaction to all this insanity has been so many people taking the streets. I mean, the Women's March was an enormous, completely spontaneous outpouring. What you're seeing in the congressional districts and the Senate districts this last week and this week during the recess, people spontaneously showing up saying, wait a minute, I'm on Obamacare and I, what's going to happen to me? Um, I've always said that the only difference between tragedy and victory is will. So we're capable of building an economy that can raise everybody up and frankly do 3.5% indefinitely or more. We're capable of building a, a society globally which doesn't need fossil fuels and is more financially viable because of it. We're capable of giving free education, which I think education is the key, through college for free. And we're capable of doing all that and having a huge boost in the economy if we so choose. It's about will. What do we choose? What you just said is, you think you see people choosing to engage. That's the beginning of victory. But they got to stay with it. What's that old saying? There's no time for uh, sunshine patriots and summer warriors. I mean, we, we got to have people who are going to show up at Valley Forge and stick all winter. Yep. And, uh, you know, this is interesting that just today we had the, um, the encampment was broken. At the Dakota Access Pipeline? Yeah. Yeah. They broke it up today. And, and you know, that was a great, noble effort. And for as long as it lasted, it rallied us. But in the end, what happened? The pipeline's going through. Yeah. Okay. Now, I'm not saying you're always going to lose. To the contrary. What I'm saying is, if people stay engaged, if they really care enough to elect leadership that's noble, wise, willing to be collective as opposed to greedy driven you know what's best for the group um i think we've got an incredible future ahead of us but we do we must choose that and maybe what this is doing is help us get clarity that that's what is happening yeah yeah i think so all right well with that i want to thank everyone for listening and if you have questions comments uh thoughts you want to share do email us info at worldbusiness.org and until then oh and please do follow ronaldo at ronaldo brutico on and Twitter. if you haven't already Go to daily, Optimus Daily. Where do they go to sign up? OptimusDaily.com and check out the Optimus Daily there. Free service. You'll love it. And uh, it's five optimistic and hard news stories every week, uh, every weekday. So, yeah, please sign up for that. And in the meantime, um, continue listening. Do tell your friends and uh, spread the word. We're probably going to be going to a more uh, rapid or more frequent update uh given the the we'd like to if we could could find some some sponsors we'd go to a weekly show which i'd love to do okay thanks everybody much appreciate it